I took this position. I'm like, okay, we have these problems. How can I fix it? I open up my own pharmacy. I'm the pharmacist. And I'm going to give every single person that comes in here the attention that they deserve. And I'm going to collaborate with their physician. And I'm going to build a network that now the patient and the pharmacist and the doctor or the primary care physician are all collaborating. And I'm going to give all this attention to this patient. And they're going to love it because they're not used to seeing it because it's not common practice in the retail setting. And that's exactly what I did. And it blew up. That's interesting. Putting the client first. You are listening to the Passive Wealth Principles Podcast. I'm your host, Jake Harris. And when I'm not hosting this podcast, I'm the founder of an award-winning real estate investment firm and actively investing in commercial real estate all over the country. This show allows me to interview, dive deeper, and deconstruct many passive wealth principles, not just from investing, but tactics, strategies, and many fascinating ways in which people have achieved levels of passive wealth. Through my nearly 20-year career as a professional investor, I've built an amazing network of people and come across some super savvy investors. Not only do they have a unique stance on the marketplace, but look at the same problems we all face and many times have come up with a simple but unconventional approach to solving them. This is why I'm so excited for this podcast. It allows me to unpack and have a more in-depth conversations with these special guests. Selfishly, It's a platform where I get to ask the questions that would never come up in a normal conversation, and I get a chance to learn and dissect their best strategies, and you get to be a part of that process as well. So come be a fly on the wall, enjoy the conversations, and these amazing Passive Wealth Principle Lessons. Welcome to Passive Wealth Principles. My name is Jake Harris. I'm the host of this podcast show. And today I have a very, very special guest, Adrian Akay. Adrian, a pharmacist, doctor, drug dealer, slinging drugs out onto the street in the professional sense. If you're watching the video, the professional, I put those quotes out there. You know, maybe growing up in Philly, he had some other experiences of other types of drugs, but he's leveraged that experience of helping people and and built it into a very, very robust business that leverage, and I now think has, you know, close to 70 employees, five, six, you know, locations, and as As he's growing that, he has been able to leverage and free up his time as uh, not only a business owner, but now as an investor and a family man. So he's got some key insights and how Brazilian jiu-jitsu also became a very critical component of his growth as a human, as well as that leveraged into him as being a businessman as well. So look forward to diving into all the insights that my friend Adrian has on Passive Wealth Principles, now into the show. Welcome to Passive Wealth Principles. I'm your host, Jake Harris. I have the very exciting privilege of interviewing my new friend, Adrian. Adrian, it was, was it a month ago, two months ago? that we officially met in person. Yep. I think we've, we've talked for a few months before that, but we, we were down in Atlanta and we got to hang out. You live in Florida now and you're from Philly. Maybe your family wasn't from the United States. You're born here. Tell us a little bit about your backstory. Yes, absolutely. So thank you so much for having me on. This is my first official podcast. I've never done one of these. So, you know, very excited, also very nervous. So backstory, born and raised in Philly, man, born and raised in South Philadelphia. My parents are originally from Damascus, Syria, came here like 40 plus years ago. Both of them are engineers, actual engineers, and they came to the U.S. to have a better life. You know, like most people come to the, for the same reason come to the U.S. for a better life. And uh, so I was born and raised in South Philly. I have two other brothers. And growing up in Philly was very interesting, man. It's a very, very interesting lifestyle growing up in Philly. And now that I'm in Florida, very different. You know, growing, living in Florida for the last almost two years and leaving Philadelphia. Philadelphia is like your... So my family, when they moved to the U.S., they didn't just come alone. They brought the whole family with them. So I have about 100, 135 cousins, family members all in Philly. 
big family out there. So leaving Philadelphia was leaving like, you know, a foundational point for our family. And I stepped into the Florida world now. Dude, that is, that is crazy. That, that many cousins. And, you know, so you got a couple siblings, lots of cousins, aunts, uncles, everything like that. Do you guys all, or did you all live in close proximity in Philly? We did all live in close proximity and they actually started migrating to the U S in like the sixties. So I have great uncles that have been here for 50 plus years, almost 60 years. And we all kind of grew up in the same area. So there's like second, third generation now cousins that are all living in the same area. And we all still have gatherings and get togethers and they hang out every Monday. And, you know, like when I go up there next week, we're all hanging out. I make a call. I'm like, dude, I'm flying up to Philly and we're all going to hang out. So it's a good time. That's awesome. And then you, at least maybe why I was confused is because you, you said you go back or you'd go back to Damascus when you were a kid to visit family over there. So what, what was that, you know, experience as far as in Syria and Damascus as a kid? Right. So growing up, I didn't really speak the language. And what happened was around the age of 10, my parents were like, you know, they really wanted me to learn how to speak Arabic. And so what they did was they were like, the best way to learn is let's take him over there to visit. Like he can understand, you know, the, the cultural background. And so we went and visited for the first time and they, uh, they set up tutors for me and my brothers. And, you know, it's not an easy language to learn. So they would take us, they took us there every summer from the age of 10 until I was 16. By the time I was about 14, I was pretty fluent, you know, going there for two months every summer. And then I ended up making so many friends out there by the time I was 16, you know, like just having fun. It's a very, it's very, it's structured very differently than it is here. Here it's very like work, grind, build, grow, goal-oriented society, capitalistic. There it's more like, have fun, talk to friends, build social connections, and just keep growing up the social ladder. So you have 30, 40, 50 friends that you're hanging out with at all times, and you could call them at any time, and you're just hanging out. So that was fun. And you can imagine as a 13, 14, 15, you know, 16-year-old kid, that'd be awesome to have like all these friends, like my Damascus friends and my Philly friends and my cousins. And so that that sounds like a pretty exciting opportunity that your parents provided for you. I was going to say, I was going to ask about that. I was like, what are you planning? Are you planning that for your kids? So the one thing I will tell you that I did get out of going back to Damascus when I was a kid is it gave me a perspective on a different way of life. You know, like when we grow up here as Americans, we know the American way. And so growing up or being able to go over there and spend two months into a different society, a different culture, kind of allowed me to open up my mind to a different way of life. And now that I'm older, I realize that that's not just from going to Damascus. You can do that by going anywhere. So what I do with my kids is I introduced them to multiple different cultures. So last, this year, this summer, I took them to Turkey and we spent five weeks in Turkey. Next year, we are doing five weeks in Barcelona, in Spain. And every year I try to go somewhere for at least one to two months, allow them to be engulfed in that culture so that they kind of grow mentally and they understand that there are multiple ways to live in this world and not just one way. That's awesome. Where And so I love that, that you took that insight, that it's not just the American way, you know, and, and I'd love to hear a little bit more like, what is it that you're doing today? You know, what happened after 16 years old? You know, I know what you do, but you know, your path <laughs> uh, to what you're doing today and it, did anything of that time in Damascus help or, you know, give any kind of clarity to what you're doing from a career? So absolutely. And that's a great question because I believe that the reason, the way I am today has a lot to do with that mindset. So my parents were very hardworking individuals and be it that they were so hardworking, all I saw was work, 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 work. Growing up with them, the American way, work hard, earn hard, you just keep going, you grind. But over there, they're more of lifestyle very big on their lifestyle, enjoying their life, doing things a certain way. So not so consumed with work. So what I got from that in my life was, how can I get to the point 
in the U.S. where I can actually live the life that I want to live without working day in, day out, grind, grind, grind like my parents did for 40 years, where I can actually just, you know, make money and enjoy my life the way they're living over there, but here, you know, get the best of both worlds and combine them. And so that was literally the trajectory that I was kind of aiming for when I was like thinking about going to college and, and working in my, uh, in the future. So you went off to college in Philly? I did. Yeah, okay. Where'd you go to school? So I went to, I did my undergrad at St. Joe's and then I went to uh, Temple for pharmacy school. So I have a doctor in pharmacy, went to grad school there and that was a great experience, you know? And uh, initially my parents were gun ho about me. They wanted me to be a physician. And I realized that being a physician would not give me the lifestyle that I wanted in terms of freedom, you know, because now you're married to a practice or a lifestyle or patients. And so even though I, I did want to be a physician and my parents wanted me to be a physician, I realized that that wasn't going to be what was beneficial to the lifestyle that I want to live in the future. So I took the road less traveled. And I was like, okay, what can I do that would earn me a doctor degree, but I could also create a passive way of making money so that I can live a lifestyle that I want to live. So I ended up in pharmacy school. That's interesting. So did you have any pushback? And I know that there's sometimes um, foreign or immigrants very much encouraging their kids to go be the doctor or those other things like that. Right. So it sounds like there was some <laughs> essence of that for yourself, but you were like, wait, did they have any pushback against you becoming a pharmacist and not becoming a physician or? They did. They did, you know, and not because it's a pharmacist because they just saw potential in me. And, you know, like, like all parents, they, they always see, they want the best for their kids, right? And so they wanted me to be a physician because it's prestigious and, you know, it, it's always been my thing that I love helping people. And so they were like, this fits right into your like lifestyle, but except for the one part where I'm going to be married to that world for a long period of time and not have that freedom. And so when I explained that to them, I told them that I want to travel more than two weeks a year because as a physician, it's hard to walk away from your patients for more than two weeks. And they understood that because they knew that that's where my heart was, was a, being able to travel and do things outside on my own time. And so they were okay with it. Yeah. I was going to say, so doctors, lawyers, you know, I was like, what are the other things that, uh, you know, kind of immigrant parents try to encourage their kids to do? It's, it's those, you know, and engineers, engineers, there you go. Yeah. Engineers, doctors, and uh, lawyers. Yeah. So did your siblings become an engineer <laughs> and, a, and a lawyer? So my brother who's right under me, Adam, he is a lawyer. <laughs> and then the one under uh, him went into finance and risk management, but he, he does real estate now. Okay. That's interesting. Cause I was like, man, it's like checking those boxes. Like, yeah. I was like, and that's where I was like, I feel like it's like encouraging your kids to be successful in a particular area. That's a high income or prestigious. And then I was like, not to say that being a doctor's wrong or belittling that or a pharmacist or an engineer or anyone else. But I think that's so insightful of yourself to be able to understand, like thinking that long-term vision of like, wait, a doctor's not going to, you know, a physician is not going to get me to where I want to go. So, I mean, and how did you approach, you know, the, the pharmacy aspect of that? So were you in undergrad or now? I don't know how I was an undergrad. You have to d decide and, and maybe talk me through that. Yeah. So, um, so I will say that my parents did help a lot with this whole insightfulness because when I told them about that, they were like, well, why don't you go, you know, shadow a doctor or something and kind of see what their lifestyle is like and see if you like it. And, you know, that kind of helped clarify a lot of things. And then with the pharmacy, actually, I just had a friend of mine who was also doing an undergrad in chemistry and he was like, dude, I'm just going to apply for pharmacy school, man. You know, like there's a shortage and they're making all this money and you know, it would be perfect because you get six weeks vacation. And all I kept thinking like, Ooh, six weeks vacation. That means I get to travel more and I'm making six figures. This is perfect. This is exactly where I want to be. Lots of vacation, lots of money. That's where I want to go. And that's, and I literally just applied and it was, and I got in. That's awesome. So then you go through pharmacy school, 
And then you just become a pharmacist and now you're slinging drugs on the streets or like, what, what's, what's that path look like? I was always slinging drugs on the streets. So I'm from Philly. <laughs> <laughs> so I actually, uh, I decided that my first year out, I was kind of interested in doing the clinical aspect of pharmacy because it kind of mimicked the lifestyle of a doctor. And I was like, you know, is this something I really want to do? And after trying it, I realized that it is not what I want to do. And I was more aligned with the business aspect of things. So I went into the retail. And just so you know, when you go to pharmacy school, the retail side is very taboo. You know, it's like the last resort. But I didn't see retail as a position of working behind a counter. I looked at it as a position to learn a business and then replicate that business on my own. And so I, I went into it, you know, worked my way up the food chain and got to a point where I really understood the business and decided to jump ship and do it on my own. So why is it taboo, the retail kind of thing when you're being trained? But what's the so it's a great question. Negative that is looked at it. Yep. So and and this is exactly why when you go to pharmacy school and you get a doctor in pharmacy, the subjects and the curriculum that you're studying is very intense. Okay? Extremely intense, very very clinical based lots of pharmacokinetics and math and pharmaceutics. And, and you're learning so much about the clinical aspect and how medication works. The retail is like a watered down version of what you actually learn. And so you're groomed to go into the clinical world or drug safety or something pertaining to something higher level where the retail is kind of like, Hey, you know what? You're just slinging drugs. Like you said, <laughs> you're filling pills in a bottle. There's more to it than that. Obviously you become more of like a, uh, insurance connoisseur or connoisseur, you know, everything about insurance companies. You're very in tune with formularies. You're counseling patients on medications. And obviously, depending on the state that you're in, there's a lot more clinical aspect of pharmacy than there would be in other states. So there is a prestigious part of being in a retail pharmacy, but to the outside perspective, it's very, it's like, you know, you're really just filling pills and putting pills in a bottle. Yeah. And I was like, and man, this is just probably my own ignorance about how the world works. Cause I was like, I guess the vast majority of my experience is that you go to a pharmacist to get stuff filled and, and, but you know, and obviously knowing some different people like you and anesthesiologists and all these other things, like there's so many more complexities to the medical profession. So what did you learn in the retail standpoint and, or, you know, where'd you work? And then how did you leverage that into your own business? Right. So that's a great question. So there are a lot of things that I learned. Number one, that there, there's huge, huge pharmacy, medical patient disconnect. So I call it the triangle, right? The triangle is your medical doctor or your primary care physician, and then you have your pharmacy, and then you have the actual patient. And between the three, there is not usually any type of collaboration. So that was one huge no-no that I noticed. The other thing is in the retail setting, because of the insurance company squeezing the profit margins out of the medications and the prescriptions, you're now forced to do way more prescriptions. So the whole premise went from quality and turned into quantity. And so you're now just become a production line of filling scripts versus patient care. And so with those two problems, I was like, you know what, if I did this on my own, I think I have a way of fixing this problem. And I jumped ship and that's exactly what I did. So let me see if I understood that. So like you got your, your doctor, your pharmacist and your client, none of them are kind of talking together. And then you have the insurance that is trying to squeeze out the profit out of everything. And so then it's just a matter of, well, big pharma and insurance are about making profit. Correct. You know, and so it's like, all right, how many prescriptions can we get out there to people and then not connecting that? So that sounds like you identified obviously a, a big opportunity. And so then how did you take that and then leverage that into a business? You just opened a local pharmacy on the corner and just said, hey, I'm doing things different. 
I did. That's exactly what I did. So I took all these weak, weak points and, and that's, you know, kind of where I live. I'm problem solving, you know, always been problem solving. So I took this position. I'm like, okay, we have these problems. How can I fix it? I open up my own pharmacy. I'm the pharmacist and I'm going to give every single person that comes in here the attention that they deserve. And I'm going to collaborate with their physician and I'm going to build a network that now the patient and the pharmacist and the doctor or the the primary care physician are all collaborating. And I'm going to give all this attention to this patient and they're going to love it because they're not used to seeing it because it's not common practice in the retail setting. And that's exactly what I did. And it blew up. That's interesting. Putting the client first. Wow. Crazy. You know, the customer, the person. Common sense. (laughs) Um, So how did that blow up? What did it do? And how did you how did you scale that? So what ended up happening was we had a health center right down the street from our the first location that I opened up. And because I was giving so much attention to these patients, they started using my pharmacy regularly. And it it got extremely busy. So one day the CEO of the, the health center walks in and they're like, what are you doing to get all these patients? And I was like, what do you mean? And he was like, well, we, ha- we were doing, we have a pharmacy and we're not doing nearly as many. And all we hear about is Adrian, Adrian, Adrian. And I, we wanted to meet who, we wanted to meet Adrian. Who's Adrian? And I'm like, I'm Adrian. And they were like, all right, well, what are you doing? I was like, I'm talking to them. I'm sitting with them. I go to their house. If they have a, you know, a wedding, I'll go to a wedding. I'm a part of the community. And they were like, that's amazing. And they were like, would you be interested in, you know, working with us and we can work together and collaborate and, you know, contractually and all that. And that was my first introduction to uh, what a, what in the pharmacy world is called the 340B world, which is a, is a caveat in the, in the law, which allows pharmacy and medical to collaborate together without breaking the law. And they're federally qualified health centers or they're federally funded facilities. And then you have to apply through a website called HRSA, HRSA, and then you guys get the approval and then you can work together as one unit. And it's amazing. It's great for patients. Interesting. So tell me a little bit more about that. I mean, this is super fascinating to me as far as, so like a 340B and the health uh, center collaboration. So how does that help the client? Well, so what ended up happening was the reason why it helps the client is there's it's funded very differently. So the insurance companies cannot cap reimbursement the same way they would cap reimbursement on the retail side. So there's more dollars going to help these patients in these communities. And what ended up happening is one of the challenges was the collaboration, right? So we had their health, their system operating system, we had it put into our pharmacy. So on top of that, we were able to kind of collaborate with the IT team at the health center and add a pharmacy portion to it. So now you're almost in direct messaging with the physicians or the nurse practitioners or the PAs or the nurses or the MAs or whoever you're need, you need to speak to directly, right away, right through their system. And everything is documented and stored, but it's in real time. So I don't have to pick up the phone anymore and wait 10 minutes until someone answers and then leave a message or call a nurse and, oh, the doctor will get back to you. And this. no, it's right there in real time. So a patient walks in, oh, there's an interaction between this and this. Hold on a second. Give me a second. Boom, boom, boom. Type it up. Send it to the doctor. Oh, thank you for letting me know. All documented, stored in the soap notes. And they're like, boom, we're going to adjust it or change it to this right there, real time. And the patients loved it because they're getting immediate satisfaction, instant gratification right there. That's interesting because the reason my wife recently had, you know, the opposite of that experience. And actually I was picking up prescription for my wife and I went over there and they're like, I was like, Hey, I'm picking up a prescription for my wife. And they're like, I don't know what you're talking about. Right. (laughs) I'm like, uh, well, what do you mean? You don't know. I was like, so I'm like calling my wife. She's not feeling well. So I'm picking it up for her. And I was like, Hey, I'm here. And they, they have nothing for you. And she's like, well, my doctor, I'm like, who's your doctor? Like, who's this? And so then they're calling and they're like, yeah, we have nothing for you. And so then I'm like, well, uh, 
I don't know. And so then I was like, I have to go back home, try to track down her doctor. They call and they're, oh, we actually called it into the wrong place. We called it into the hospital over there. And can you drive? There? And I'm like, no, I want the one by my house. And uh, and so then they're like, okay, well, we'll get that back. And then it's like two, three hours later, you know, like come in and they still don't have it. I come in and they have to fill the order. Oh yeah, we just got that. So it was like, that's just one example. And I'm sure you oh, experienced yeah. that. Ooh, that's so common. But we've been able to to combat that, combat the way that we do things, you know, like we've been able to adjust because of that system. We can go in there and be like, oh, it got sent here. We'll readjust it. You know, we'll talk to them, get it fixed. Everything was so easy and streamlined. So it got to the point that we were, we were making big strides in the Philly market. And so from that point, the director of the facility asked me to speak on, um, it was on a, for one of the top insurance companies in Philadelphia. And I, you know, I remember speaking on there and we had like two other people reach out to us and like, Hey, would you be interested in opening up with us as well? And then other people decided to do it on their own, you know? And so it kind of just blew up from there because, you know, it, it was a good thing and it was turning into a great thing because it was constantly being adjusted month after month until it got to the point where it was almost like to a perfection point. So that was super easy. You know, it was, it didn't require very much work at all. But I mean, it sounds like you built out a pretty robust infrastructure system and connection and communication. And so like, what is that like as far as now you've got a few other hospitals or healthcare or health clinics or whatever they kind of are. So like, what does that look like from a day to day? Is Adrian getting to travel and spend his six weeks vacation or not? So, yeah, so that's a great question. So I will say when you don't know about opening a business, you really don't know about opening a business. Like people think opening up a business is going to free your time. And it's exactly the opposite. You actually get trapped in your business. So it was very, very, very difficult. So I had the wrong mindset going into it. And then about when we started getting to, you know, location number two and three, I realized that there was a huge disconnect in my mindset. So I needed to adjust that mindset and I needed help. One of the things I needed help with was um, compliance. You know, compliance in pharmacy is huge, you know, and my brother's an attorney. And so uh, we talked about partnering together and working on, he would run this compliance portion and, you know, make sure that everything is dialed in and I would run the whole operation part and I'll make sure that part's dialed in. And initially, I'm not going to lie to you, probably for the first four or five years, zero vacations, (laughs) exactly opposite of what I wanted. And it was very, very hard. And, you know, I had to learn how to trust people. I had to learn how to build systems. I had to learn how to put the right people in place. And once I learned and I adjusted that mindset and learned to trust people and build systems and put the right people in place, I started realizing, okay, wait, now I have freedom again. You know, I don't have to be there every day from open to close. I don't have to be there on the weekends. And it slowly got better and better and better. And it all started with my mindset. How did you change your mindset? Was there something that created a catalyst? Was it just the fact that you haven't had vacation for so many years? Or what was that process about? You know what? It's funny. I don't I don't ever think mindset changes like all at once. I think mindset has slow shifts, right? And so if you look back 10 years, you're like, wow, my mindset has changed a lot. But if you look back one month, you don't see any change. But it is always kind of changing, you know. And how did I change it? I read a lot. I was reading books left and right on try on learning how to adjust my business pivot, freedom, systems, everything, and meeting people and talking to people and, you know, business mentors and people who've done this and, you know, and they, you're getting nuggets and nuggets and nuggets. And then you look back, you're like, wow, I'm a completely different person than I was five years ago. You're very happy in your transition because you're growing in the right, in the right way. Are you guys enjoying the show so far? Look, two of the most common questions I get asked are, where can I find good deals to invest into? And is it possible to invest alongside of our deals as a passive investor? 
So my team and I wanted to put together an insider list where you can get first access to investment opportunities, due diligence resources, and best practices for those interested in investing passively into deals like the ones we talk about on the show. Those deals are mostly in the commercial real estate space, but I oftentimes get exclusive access to deals of people like the guests on my show. If those deals pass our criteria, we pass them on to those on the list. To gain access to this insider list, all you have to do is go to www.catchkniveswithans.com and hit the big orange button on the top right of the page. We also host events, dinners, and give away VIP access to events that I'm speaking at or attending. Once again, it's www.catchkniveswithans.com and hit the big orange button on the top right of the page. For those that are serious about passive wealth building, we'll see you on the inside. Now, back to the show. I usually save this for the end as far as, are there any books that you really connected with as far as that helped, you know, maybe put those seeds of change in you? Uh, Absolutely. So I will say with regard to building systems, E-Myth is amazing. Amazing. That book was what started me down the path of building systems. And then there's so many other books. I read all of like Robert Kiyosaki's like line from Rich Dad Poor Dad, Cashflow Quadrant, you know, every single one of his books I've read. And there were so many other atomic habits and building good habits and, you know, doing all the things to really move the needle in the right direction, kind of one step, one like atomic habits, one, 1% every day. 1% every day, you know, until it it really just became part of who I was. Yeah. I love, I love Michael E. Gerber's, you know, kind of E-Myth series. And he's even started breaking those down into more. Love the analogies that it's like, I think it was his book. They kind of blend together a little bit. As you read more and more books, they (laughs) sort of blend together. And I was like working on the business, not in your business. And it was like working on the systems. So like, dude, if you're working McDonald's, the systems are pretty good. You're getting a consistent hamburger all over the world. And let's be honest, some pot smoking teenage kid that, you know, you can barely get to show up on time to a job can make you the same hamburger anywhere in the world. Exactly. Because they have a system. Right. And so it was like, aha, like, wait a minute. It's not how good is Adrian or Jake or you know, but how about those systems? So talk to me about, you know, what are some of the systems that you've been able to build or now put into place in the last few years that's given you the ability to move to Florida? Absolutely. So one of the books that I I didn't mention was uh, Ray Dalio's Principles. Uh, That was a big influence on me as well. I read that. I read that twice because of how influential it was to me and Cashflow Quadrant. And so Cashflow Quadrant talks about this is a, a Robert Kiyosaki book. You start at the E, the employee, and then the, you move on to the S, which is the self-employed, which is what I was when I was running my business. You know, I went from an employee, opened up my business. I was the pharmacist. I'm an S. Now I have to transition to a B. So what's the test? The test is if you walk away from your business, will it still run? You know, if it doesn't run anymore, if it's going to fall apart, that means you're still stuck as an S. If it runs and you're not there, you are now a B. Okay, the business side. So now you're on the right side of the quadrant, and then I falls right under that. Uh, and so that's kind of the natural progression of work. So what ended up happening was I started asking myself every single time. Okay, and in pharmacy we had so many positions. So we we have HR, we have compliance, we have auditing, we have um, operations director, we have a senior operations director, we have VPs, we have the CEO, we have the COO, we have finance, you have lead techs, pharmacists, technicians, you have so much. And so I started asking myself, okay, what am I doing? So I started listing everything I was doing. And I'm like, okay, if I don't do this, is it going to get done or is it going to fall apart? And then I'm like, okay, it's falling apart. What do I need to do to go from an S to a B? from a self-employed to a business owner. And can I build a system? So I start with manuals and I have to train the right people, you know, and now that person can do it. Now I'm not doing it anymore. Cool. So now move on to the next. And the problem is pharmacy is such a complicated business because you're dealing with drugs and you're dealing with patient people's lives that you are always on, you're always focused on it. You're so, you have to be so precise in everything you do that it's not as simple as, 
making a hamburger, <laughs> you know, like, but in this situation, so we had to systematize it and we had to figure out that way. And so that was really the question. If I walk away, will it still be the same way it was when I, when I was there? And that we went down that rabbit hole and it took years to develop these systems. Man, that is impressive because I didn't, I guess I didn't think about that, but he was like a bad hamburger. You're like, maybe at worst, you know, you got too much mustard, you know, too many onions. Maybe it tastes bad. I guess worst case scenario, you get some food poisoning or something like that. But with pharmacy, like people die, like, you know, get really, really sick or, you know, other things like that. So it's pretty intense. So very low margin for, for air. So what does your business look like now? Like, what is it like? It's, is it still the three locations is how many employees? Like how, how has that grown from? We've grown a lot. Um, we have a couple down the pipeline. We're at uh, about five to seven now. And we have about 68, I believe, employees. Um, but they're not employees. It's more like family. Like everybody who's in this is, you know, is in it for the long haul. And I'm, I'm away from the operation. So my brother stepped into, uh, I stepped down as CEO about two years ago. And he stepped in place in me so that I could live the lifestyle of a passive investor. And he's been running the pharmacies for the last two years. And that's what, you know, propelled me to move to Florida. I really just got tired of the cold. I got tired of the cold and I really wanted to be in a warm place. How did you pick Florida? So Florida was actually an easy pick and I'll tell you why. So every winter I get the winter blues. You know, and so Philly in, in the wintertime gets kind of gray. You don't see the sun that much. And so I would break my winters up and fly down to Florida with my wife. And then eventually we had kids and, you know, it started off in Miami and I got married and moved up to like, you know, Fort Lauderdale and then Hollywood. And then from there, you know, I had kids and we started co coming up more to like Deerfield Beach and like more family friendly beaches, Delray. And you know, when I, we were looking at houses, we were just like, okay, what school district, where, where are the school districts the best? And, and Boca was top of the line down here. So that's where we started looking at. And so Florida was an easy, easy transition because we, we were always going to Florida every year. We we're just visiting Florida just to break up the winter time. Yeah, that's it's interesting for a lot of people that don't know because I, I went to school, I went to grad school down in in Miami at FIU, and exactly what you said is it starts down and then everybody kind of starts migrating north as far as the different beach communities, and, and it's like the further yeah. and further away from Miami um, becomes more suburban, you know, more family friendly, more whatever, it's less hustle and bustle and wild and crazy. Yes. Yes, absolutely. And um, it's, it's beautiful here. Come visit. You guys should all come visit. Yeah. So you're now, you're in Boca Raton. I'm in Boca Raton. And yeah, and you're in Boca, your kids, they're doing school and you have, you're living your passion and doing Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. Yes. So along with the pharmacies, I did know, you know, obviously I'm reading all these other books, ABCs of real estate and all these Brandon Turner books and all these other books. And I'm investing in real estate alongside my pharmacies. And so I'm building, you know, different streams of income. And then, you know, I'm in Florida. And one of the things I've always been doing I've, since I, before I started working at my, at my own pharmacy was training jujitsu. And so uh, I decided that I was going to open up a jujitsu school right next to my house because the jujitsu culture is like a religion. It's amazing what it does for the soul. It's great for your way of life from a health standpoint, from, for your kids and raising them, getting them off the streets, getting them in a, in a healthy mindset. And so I've been teaching my kids since they were like two and my kids are six and eight now. And, uh, you know, I decided to open up a, uh, a, a Gracie jiu-jitsu school, which is geared very much towards character development and self-defense down here in, in Florida, uh, right next to my house. And I am, I'm, I'm a black belt in Gracie jiu-jitsu. I love that. I, I, I've done that much, like small amount. It was actually, it started when I was in the army and, uh, you know, UFC was started coming out and you saw Hoist Gracie and the guys and you were just like, what is that? Like there's a guy laying down on his back and trying to get these guys and then, but they're tapping out and this big, strong dudes and karate kid and all these <laughs> other things are all losing to Brazilian jiu-jitsu. But I was in the army and we did, you know, uh, I was in the uh, infantry unit. And so we do like hand-to-hand -hand combat and training, but 
then they would have uh, some Brazilian jiu-jitsu guys come out there. And I was just like, I'm going to, I'm going to whoop up on these guys. I'm going to just, oh man, I'm going to whoop. I am strong. I'm young. I'm infantry, you know, guy. And they just like balled me up. And it was just like, well, it was a little bit embarrassing, like how easy they manipulated you. And you were just like, wait, what the hell? Like, what's going on? Like, I have no idea. I'm like, I don't like this, that they're obviously way better at this than I am. And they had nothing to do with how strong you were or how fast or anything like that. So very, very interesting, the discovery of of jujitsu. So when did you discover jujitsu? And then how has that been applicable to Adrian as a person or maybe as a businessman or husband or anything else? So, so that's a very, very deep question, I would say, because if anyone listening does train jujitsu, they understand the dynamic of how jujitsu affects your life. And so I started training jujitsu. I've always done stand up. So karate, boxing, Muay Thai. Uh, and I remember walking into a gym looking for a, a Muay Thai gym and the instructor comes up and he was just like, why don't you train jujitsu? And I was like, nah, I'm not big on like wrestling and ground stuff. If somebody tries, and, and you'll hear this a lot. So if somebody's listening that does jujitsu, they're going to laugh at this. I was like, dude, if anybody tries to take me down, I'll knock them out. You know, that's always the thing. I'll knock them out. <laughs> and, and if you've ever been in a fight, it's not that easy to knock someone out unless you have like, they're standing there and they don't know you're about to hit them, you know? So he literally was like, oh, okay. And he just grabs me and takes me to the ground. And then he was just like, what happened? And I was like, I was in shock. I was like in disbelief. And then he was like, get out. And I couldn't get out. And I was like, what the hell is this? You know, and it blew my mind. So I ended up signing up. I was like 27 years old at the time. I'm 40 now. And, um, you know, and I started, I start. I, I remember telling my brother, I'm like, dude, you know, you got to do this with me, bro. And he was like 18 at the time or something like that. And he was like, all right, you know, let's do it together. So we, we ended up going, uh, we ended up doing it together and 13 years later. And so you asked me, how does it change your life? So jujitsu mimics exactly what you are doing in your life. It shows on the mat. So if you're an aggressive person and be aggressive on the mat, if you're passive, you're going to be passive on the mat. If you're in a phase right now where you're in a learner's mindset, where you're not like, you're not on that attack you're more of like laying back and kind of trying to figure things out. When you're on the mat, you're going to be the same exact way. Everything you do in life transfers to the mat. And it's amazing. So you can see what's going through people's lives when you roll with them on the mat. And you're like, oh, okay. He's being this way now because that's what's going through his life right now. And it, it's amazing. It's like, it's almost kind of like poetic. And then you might see them three months later and they're very different. And you're like, wait a second, this guy's like, you know, going hard as hell now. Maybe that's what's going on in his life right now. So it's just amazing how it kind of connects. And if anybody's listening, like I said, that does jujitsu, they know exactly what I'm talking about. It's crazy. How has that been as an outlet for you? With working, you know, uh, I was like, as a business owner, running businesses have levels of stress that most other people maybe don't understand, you know, as far as the complexity, 68 employees. I don't have 68 employees. I have like 20 something, but it was like almost at any given time, something's not going to plan. (laughs) Right. You're always problem solving, right? You're always dealing with, with fires and trying to put them out. And I'll tell you exactly how that helped me. There is never a point when you have a business that you're not thinking about your business. You try your hardest to shut off and you cannot. You might wake up in the middle of the night, oh, I forgot to do this, or I got an idea, and you write it down. Like your brain's always working on the business. That's why jujitsu was perfect for me. Because for those every Monday, Wednesday, Friday and Saturday, sometimes other days at noon, I would disconnect. I would go to the gym, And from 12 to 2, I was in jujitsu. And there is no way in hell you're thinking about anything but jujitsu because you're like, yo, I'm going to get killed if I focus on anything else. And so I was focused on jujitsu. And for those two hours, that was like my relief. That was my sanctuary. That was where business could not enter. 
And it was amazing. It was the best thing in the world because I would come out with total clarity. I would come out a new person ready to like take over again, you know? And so I did that almost every day, every week for 13 years. That's awesome. I, I'm glad that you went there because I, I feel like people need to find something like that. For me, a lot of times it was snowboarding. It's something that you have to be very present with that you have to, because like, oh, hey, I don't want to run into a tree or you're like, you can only, you can focus right now, be very present with where you are and what you're doing. Jiu-jitsu, same thing. If you're thinking and wandering and, you know, doing those other things, dude's going to crush you. You know, you're, you get crushed. You get bent up. You'd be like, nah, that's, and so it allows as far as it creates the environment to where you can disconnect and turn off that monkey mind. And now, I mean, obviously, uh, you know, talking with you and understanding and spending some more time, you're real estate investing. You were not completely focused on just your business side or, or vertical income of making cash. You're also investing it in other areas. So talk to me a little bit about that and how that's allowed you or afforded you certain luxuries or freedom of time or peace of mind or whatever it is done as far as how did you come to doing that investment and what has that done or afforded you in your life? Yeah. So, I mean, you know, I always felt that pharmacy was a temporary thing for me at some point because a lot of regulations are always changing in the pharmacy world and you have to pivot and stuff like that. And real estate always kind of seemed to me as a more kind of steady, safer investment. And so I live a very minimal lifestyle, nothing lavish or anything like that. So, you know, I, what I would do with my excess income is I would buy real estate, you know, and I was just like, okay, you know, I'm just going to put my money into real estate. And eventually my real estate started producing income that I could almost live off of. And, and stepping away from my business, I felt very comfortable, not only because my brother was running and I trust my brother completely. Um, but also I knew that I had another stream of income that, that I could always depend on. And then that, you know, you, you start thinking like, okay, well, why is it just that you can do so many other different things and invest in other things and streams of income. And so, you know, the, the whole passive, it goes right back to what I was saying earlier, the passive mindset, the passive, you know, way of living, uh, in terms of accumulating wealth. Well, I, I do want, I could talk to you for hours. I know that you and I spent lots of time together in uh, Atlanta and we're going to go spend some time in Boca and, and South Florida soon, or maybe, maybe some traveling some other places as well. Um, I think connecting up because I, I, I just love the way that you continue to show up and the energy you bring. And I, and I, I think, you know, people in the audience is just getting a little slice of that in person. It's even bigger. Like you are <laughs> inspire people and it's exciting just being around other people you know, like you. And so I really appreciate and very, you know, grateful for the way that you show up and I appreciate being, I get to pop your cherry on the podcast thing as far as like, yeah, yeah the first podcast that's Adrian. Ever done. <laughs> yeah. So I hope that it was at least memorable enough that you want to go do it again, you know, with somebody else. I have a few questions that I like to ask and, and, uh, these can just be rapid fire. They can take you as, as long as you want. But one of the questions that I often ask is what is one of the things that you have done? Done, invested into or put money or something like that that's helped give you more time back? Deep question, loaded question. So I've done a lot of things, but I would say my number one, well, well, in education, obviously, I always believe that you're going to, if you're going to work, work to learn, not work to make money. But honestly, my brother, you know, like one, it's family, you know, so you have a family unit there and you trust that person. Two is he stepped into my shoes as the CEO of the company so that I didn't have to be there anymore. And so he stepped in and I was able to step out. And that was worth every penny, honestly. You know, whatever it would have cost, it was worth it for so many reasons. One, it fast forwarded his learning as well. It allowed me to free myself up to learn new things because you know, you're only limited to so much time. So if you're stuck doing one thing, you're not able to do another thing. So it freed me up to learn other things. And that to me is huge. You know, that's, that's very, very important. I love that answer. I love the fact that you work with family. I've worked with my family a lot and people are very 
a lot of people said, don't do it. Don't work with family. It's, it's causes issue. But I was like, man, to what you said earlier, trust. I trust my family way more than I trust somebody else. And if you can't trust your family, then I don't know, man, that sucks. And so another kind of follow-up question I have is you mentioned a couple of books earlier, E-Myth by Michael E. Gerber and, and Robert Kiyosaki. But is there a book that you have gifted to other people or it's been like obscure that you have, you know, you don't think anybody else has ever read it and that it was like, wow, I just love that book. The book I always give to people is Grit by Angela Duckworth. I live my life on grit, passion and perseverance. You can do anything if you have passion and perseverance. And that's all I try to teach my kids. I don't try to push them into medicine or push them into anything. I push them into grit passion and perseverance. We don't give up, find something you love and go at it as hard as you can. Because honestly, if you do that, you'll be successful no matter what. Well, uh, final questions. If there's an ask of the audience, do you, are you looking for more pharmacy clients? Are you looking for real estate deals now? Are you looking for business opportunities, travel things, whatever it is, is of the audience? If there's a way for somebody to help give you and deliver you some value, what is it? And then how and where can they reach out to you? Is there, Are you on social media? You're trying to raise funds for a deal, whatever that is. If you have an ask of the audience and where can they find you? Yep. So great question. Uh, I never, I haven't thought about this. So uh, right now I'm at a pivot point in my life. So I'm learning, I want to learn how to invest in passive deals so that I can free myself up more and more. Um, so if I can learn, or if anyone has any passive investment deals, or if they can help me learn how to evaluate passive deals or anything, you know, put me in the right direction, I would be more than grateful. And you could just reach me at adrian.ak at gmail.com. It's adrian, A-D-R-I-A-N dot A-C-C-A-Y at gmail.com. Uh, that's my personal email. All the business stuff is, you know, it's business pertaining. But if you want to reach out to me personally, I'd be more than happy to talk to you. We could just talk, go out to lunch, talk about anything. You know, I love people. So just call me or, or email me. Awesome. Adrian, I appreciate you. Thank you very much for doing this and doing the show. That's essentially it. We're, we're on a wrap. I uh, hope that was it worked out for you. Talk to you later. All right, brother. Bye. I hope you enjoyed that episode today on Passive Wealth Principles Podcast. Make sure to subscribe on whatever platform you're listening to this on. If the episode made you think of someone, go ahead and take a screenshot and share this episode with them. You can tag us or find us as a podcast at Catch Knives or me personally at Jake.RealEstate. For those investors that are listening to this and want to be able to take advantage of distressed investing opportunities, a perfect place to start is my best-selling book, which also happens to be called Catching Knives. It's a full breakdown and guide on how I and many of my partners take advantage of opportunities in distressed commercial real estate. Go to www.catchkniveswithans.com and grab the book there as there's a few book bonuses that I know you'll love. Once again, www.catchkniveswithans.com. Take care and I'll see you in the next episode.